Welcome back to another episode of the Better Than I Found It podcast. You're listening to Mike McGraw, the men's golf coach at Baylor. Joining me today on Better Than I Found It is none other than former NCAA individual champion and longtime PGA Tour player, Greer Jones. Now, Greer enjoyed a 12-year career on the PGA Tour, and he won three times. But following his PGA Tour career, he was also a terrific college golf coach, leading the Wichita State University program for 25 years. Admittedly old school, Greer talks about the qualities that make a great player and a great coach as well. He's a great storyteller. I hope you enjoy. All right, everybody, let's uh, join me in welcoming former Wichita State golf coach Greer Jones to the podcast today. Greer, thanks for joining me. Good to be here, Mike. You know, um, you've been retired a few years now from coaching college golf, but if I look back to my childhood, you know, people that know me well know that I was a huge Ben Hogan fan. I was a gigantic Jack Nicholas fan, but... Most people don't really know when I was 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, two of my favorite players on the PGA Tour, and you you were one of them. So it was Greer Jones. And then a couple of years later was Mark Hayes. And what you both had in common was you were Oklahoma State golfers, All-Americans, champion golfers. But, you know, most people wouldn't think, gosh, you're two of your heroes as a kid were Greer Jones and Mark Hayes. I mean – Come on, Greer. Did you know you were my hero when I was 10 years old? No, I didn't. Well, you had just been the rookie of the year on the PGA Tour, and you were an Oklahoma State golfer. And, I mean, to me, that was just about as good as it got, you know. And so, but anyway, I've never told you that, and I wanted to say it on the podcast because I was a, a what you would call a golf nerd. So I knew just about every name on the PGA Tour at the time, but I definitely knew OSU golfers as a kid growing up. Well, you had a you had a wide difference because the difference between Mark Hayes and I and Jack Nixon and Ben Hogan is pretty wide. Well, yeah, it is, but I had my favorites. No, 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 no effect meant against Mark. No, of Mark, course. Mark was no, no. a great player. Mark was a great player. Well, listen, um, so you grew up in Wichita, Kansas, um, not too far from Stillwater, probably three hours away. Um, two. Talk about growing up in Wichita, your junior career. You know, who had the biggest influence on that junior career? Because I know the game was a lot different back in the 1960s, but who was it that got you into the game? Well, it was, you know, obviously our fathers always have an impact on us. And he got me started. Uh and, you know, I really didn't have a teacher per se, although I did. I mean, I had some guys that helped me. But I'm going to guess if this makes any sense is that a place probably had more influence influence on me than any one person. And that would have been McDonald Park. And uh, as you probably know, and I've probably told you a number of times that in the late 50s, in the 60s and 70s, there was oh, 25 or 30 guys that all played pretty well, and that's where all the games were. That's where all the, the bets and the gambling and, you know, not high stuff, but that's basically where I learned just about everything. I, you know, those guys over there were always pretty good, and they had no problems 
taking money from a younger guy. <laughs> so uh, they, they didn't have, didn't matter. You were 16 years old. They were going to take your money. Oh yes. They take your money, whatever else they could get. Do you think that that had a big influence on how, how you developed your game? I mean, cause you, I, I think it was the most largest influence of anything. Well, uh, so you said you didn't really have an instructor. That's kind of running anti-modern day because nowadays just about every kid grows up with an instructor. I mean, do, do, in your opinion, would you rather grow up the way you did without all that help and just kind of figuring it out? Or would you rather have somebody guiding you along the way? Well, you know, I, I got to be a little careful here. My opinion sometimes... I, I talk too much about them, but, you know, I think, I think nowadays, I think the teaching is, is far better than it was many years ago. I think there's a, a lot of people who know how to teach the game, but I think it's, you know, this teaching from machines and angles and copying the guys on the tour and all that stuff they do. And I, you know, I can't get, real definitive here about how it happens because I don't know much about it. But I think I think they learn more how to swing than they learn how to play. Mm. Mm, that's well said. And I think that, you know, the way I learned is that, I mean, I would have loved to have had somebody make my grip a little less strong. And I would have it would have been nice to to have somebody to run to, hey, but on the other hand, you had to learn the hard way. You had to go out there while you were playing and figure it out. And there's something about that. There's something about learning it on the run. And then, you know, you're, you're not stuck because you've learned it yourself. And then you're able to help yourself. You know, I'm glad, I'm glad you said that, Greer. My favorite teachers today are the ones who actually like to go to tournaments and watch players play that they teach and that actually caddy occasionally for one of their players because they, they get to see what is happening on the golf course and they actually give playing lessons. I, I think that's valuable because I'm, I'm not a huge fan of just learning the game in a laboratory. I think there's a place for that, but I also think you need to get out and dig it out of the ground. Uh, I, I think that, I think you're right. I, I think there's, I think the guys that go out on the golf course, because obviously you don't swing the same always as you do when you're practicing or when you're playing with your friends, as you do coming down the 71st hole with a one shot late. So you need to, whoever helps you needs to watch you when you've got the heat on you and see what happens. You know, how much does my swing shorten? How much do I stop turning? All the little things that make a great golf swing. But I agree with you hundred percent. I think those guys that are on the spot or on the job or, take the time to go out with a, with a, their player and watch when it, when it counts, when you've got that scorecard in your pocket. I think those are the guys that if I had a youngster and I was going to take them to learn, that's who I'd take them to. Very well said. You know, I think there's a combination. You can kind of marry the two together. There's a combination of using the modern day technology. And you said it earlier. There's a lot of really great instructors out there nowadays, people that know a lot more than, 50 or 60 years ago. But if you could marry that with a little bit of the old school, I think you'd have the best of both worlds. I think so. I, I don't think there's any doubt that the guys nowadays through the 
the machines and the video and whatever else they have, uh, that they can get you in the right position. They can get your right elbow where it's supposed to be and this and that and all the other, you know, stuff they do. But then there's there's the, the playing part. There's the mental part. And, you know, obviously, if you're out there when the game is on and you're getting help then, then I think you do, you're going to get stuff that you can never get, you know, in, on a video camera. You know, you said something to me one time. I actually included this in my book, but I'd like to I'd like to mention it here on this podcast. And that was the weight of a pencil. And I remember you told me this. We were at Karsten Creek. Don't know if you'd brought your team down to play or what, but you said there's a the biggest difference between competitive golf and just casual golf is the weight of a pencil. And I thought to myself, I wonder what he means by that. And I had no idea. Do you remember telling me that story? Well, you know, I think I heard it from somebody, you know, and yeah, I remember it. And, you know, it's always, it was always a joke that when you teed off that pencil weighed about a half an ounce. And by the time you got to 16, it weighed 10 pounds. So it's yeah, just, uh, it was another way to say that, you know, when you're keeping score and it means something, it's a lot tougher to play than when you're out there messing around playing for $2. Yeah. And that pencil weighs a lot when it means your score on a scorecard, that's going to go up on a scoreboard, right? Well, yeah. I mean, everybody looks at it a little differently. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you're, you're talking about posting and, and your names beside it, but you know, for a lot of guys, it's about where they finish in a tournament. But the, the problem is those last few holes get a little tougher and, you know, if you watch the TV uh, telecast, you know, it always gets a little more exciting, 16, 17, 18, than it does on one, two, and three. And I remember many years ago when they first started televising golf, heck, they didn't even show the first nine holes. You didn't get the, the telecast didn't start till the leaders got to 12 or 13. So obviously that's where the excitement is and that's where the pressure gets the most. Yeah, that's where the drama, that's what, what's great about golf is it's like some of the greatest drama that you could have because you don't know how it's going to finish. You don't know how it's going to end up. So uh, if, if I have you right, your, your biggest influence as a junior golfer as far as developing your game came from a place, and that was McDonald Park and the games that were played out there. Yeah, I mean, you know, my young years, my 16, 17, when I was a teenager, Okay. I think I think that was it. And you know, I had some friends and there was guys we played against and and uh you know, there was there were um, a couple of Johnny Stevens, Monty Kayser were two tour players. There were four or five other guys that were pretty darn good in those days. So, you know, it wasn't like you know, you were playing a bunch of seven and eight handicappers. Those guys were all pretty pretty equal at one time. Uh, Johnny Stevens' grandson, Sam, is on his way up in pro golf these days. Have you been able to follow that at all? Yeah, I know he made the cut. He made a check yesterday and whatever in, in that in that lower tour, whatever they change the name every two years. So I never quite know what the name of it is, but Sam, Sam's he, he's a real good player. And, and of course, Johnny at one time was was phenomenal. Oh, yeah, he was a phenomenal player. He really was. That's a great, great Kansas golf family right there. Yes, um, yes it is. So 
Labron Harris, the golf coach, the first golf coach at Oklahoma State University, got you to Stillwater, Oklahoma. How did he do that? Describe recruiting in those days compared to today. Well, back then, you know, I think most of the guys recruited from the U.S. Junior and in the bigger tournaments. And, you know, there were some kids that either didn't go to those tournaments, couldn't afford to go, whatever. And there, you know, there was the U.S. Junior. There was the, oh, what was there? Uh, there were a couple of organizations that put on a tournament, but now, I mean, you can play against the top five players in the United States every third week somewhere. I mean, they've got all kinds of tours everywhere and uh, they're all in the paper. The results are in the paper, but back then it was just, you know, word of mouth and so forth. And, you know, I ended up started, I went out to, uh, I went out to San Jose State. Jerry Vroom was the golf golf coach. Nice guy, really nice guy. I got to like him a lot. Uh, and I just, you know, I had it in my mind. I wanted to go somewhere that it was warm where I could practice the year round. And, you know, unfortunately at that time, I was a, a typical Kansas kid. I hadn't been anywhere. And I, you know, I just wasn't comfortable out there. So I transferred back to Wichita and then finally got to Oklahoma State. Okay, that, that, that part of the story, I, I never heard that, actually. So it's good to know that. Um, so Labron, to me, was an iconic figure, just in Oklahoma, certainly in college golf, as a club pro. I mean, he, he had so many areas where he was iconic. And, but he was also a good player, and most people don't know that. He was a really good player. Mike Holder once told me that, he didn't. He played Labron like two or three times a week for uh, in a match, and he didn't beat him until his senior year. How did you fare in matches against Labron? Well, first of all, I really like Labron. Uh, you know, when I when I I got there as as a, as a sophomore, and you know, to be honest with you, I'd grown up my whole life playing for five dollars or. Uh, $2 or whatever the heck the game was out there at Mack Park. And, you know, Laburn was a pretty good player, but he's he'd gotten a little older and the Arthur Rice had gotten to him. And, you know, by the time I left Oklahoma State, you could never find Laburn when it rained. But if it was hard and windy and dry, he was there on the first tee ready to go. Because <laughs> he didn't carry it very far and he'd roll it down there a pretty good ways. But you know, he used to play, you used to put up a quarter and he'd put up a golf ball. And uh, that that's what you played for. And, uh, you know, I don't remember all the matches, but I'm going to guess that I probably beat Labor most of the time. And, you know, I was a little more competitive. Unfortunately, that is one of my not so good traits, character traits is that I, I, I was just too competitive. You know, if we were playing for nothing, I wanted to win. Uh, if it was uh, whatever that game is where you give clues and you try to guess the words and stuff, you know, if I didn't win at that, I got upset. So, but anyway, you know, I played as hard when I played Labor for that golf ball as if I was playing in the finals of the Kansas Amateur. Well, I 
it's funny you should say that Mike probably didn't start his career as good a player as you were when you started your career at Oklahoma State. So it probably took him a little longer to, to figure out how to beat Labron. But you're right. He told the same story. If it was wet, the ground was wet, and you couldn't get roll, he would by no means be on that first seat because he knew he couldn't hang with you guys that hit it further. Describe him as a coach. Like, what were his best qualities? And is there anything in particular you can remember that Labron taught you as your college coach? Well, I, I know Labor was, was serious about the game. And, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, however you look at it, you know, I was I was closer to how Labor was than most of the guys. And, you know, I was out there. I hit more balls than Labor did. And I practiced longer than anybody else. And, you know, if I was five over with three to play, I wasn't mailing it in. So I didn't ever have many problems with labor. And, you know, he and I saw eye to eye. And by the time I, by the time I got to Stillwater, he pretty much, when we teed off, followed the other guys and let me be. Because he knew that I was going to figure out if I got in trouble, which I, which I did. I mean, I hit the ball in the rough uh, uh, more often than I like to admit. And, uh, but he knew I knew the rules, and he knew that I would shoot the best score I could shoot. So uh, Labor and I didn't have many problems, except he was when he was trying to talk somebody out of a, the price of a motel room. Well, good thing you mentioned that because you can't speak about Labor and Harris unless you talk about his amazing penchant for frugality. He he literally pinched a penny better than anybody ever. Talk to me about, give me your favorite labor and story. Well, I got a couple and, you know, I can remember going to the NCA down there in, in Stillwater. And I, I don't remember exactly what kind of shirts and clothing we wore, but it wasn't Ralph Lauren. <laughs> and it was probably off the back of a used truck. And I remember we got to Las Cruces and coach had some orange shirts and they were, I promise you an inch thick. They were so hot and so uncomfortable. I'm not sure Jack could have shot him. Or, but anyway, he gave them to us. And we played the first practice round in them. And the guys came to me and said, Greer, you're, you're the only one coach listens to go and talk to him. And so I went to coach. And said, hey, coach, you know, if you want to do any good here at the NCA, we got to be able to wear our other shirts. That shirt we wore today, those are so bad, coach. Some of us are going to pass out out there. We got so hot. And he thought about it. And the next day, those shirts were gone. And I ended up winning, and the team ended up finishing third. So I think he, he would agree that that he'd done the right thing. And my best story about Laban, and there's a thousand of them, was that Coach and I both liked to get into the vending machines, something to drink, the pop and uh, the Snickers and the paydays and all that kind of stuff. And there's that little room off to the side at, out there at Lakeside. And, and we so we bet. We bet a dozen balls. Uh, which one of us would catch the other one in one of those machines. And coach used to call that stuff pogey bait. And uh, 
so we had a bet. We bet the, the dozen balls and, uh, you know, went on for about a month or a month and a half. And it's the wintertime. And Roy Bays, if you remember, was the head oh, yeah. pro out there. Roy and I were good friends. And he he told me, he said, uh, in, in, in Stillwater, I had a class at 8.30 every morning. I went at 8 30, 9.30, 10.30. 11.30, I was Mr. Swiss getting a hamburger and fries and something to drink. And then I was out at the golf course by noon. And one day, uh, uh, one of my the late, the 10.30 class canceled. So I was going to get out there early. And Roy had told me the coach had been coming out early and getting in the machines before I got there. <laughs> and uh, so I stopped early at Mr. Swiss and got me a hamburger. And I got out there and, and I parked down there. There was a, I think there was a bar across from 12 Green down there on the, what is it, the south, southwest corner of the golf, down by 12, right. 12 Green. So I parked my car there and walked up through the golf course. And, uh, uh, I came in, I said, Roy coach here yet? And he said, Oh no. He said, but he's due any minute. So I went into the room and there was a great big trash can in the room next to the pop machine. And I got in the trash can, pulled the lid over on the top and just sat in there and waited for him. And I heard him come in about, Oh, five, 10 minutes later, it seemed like 30, but, and it wasn't very, it didn't smell very good. And it, and it was hot, even though it was winter time. And, uh, I heard coach said, Roy, anybody been here yet? No coach, nobody's here. And I heard that door open <laughs> and I barely could keep from laughing. He came in there and I heard those quarters go down, down that pop machine. And I heard that pop hit the bob and I jumped out of that. And I swear to God, I thought he was going to have a heart attack. He <laughs> turned absolutely livid white. And then he went into the pro shop and got a dozen balls and threw them at me. And oh, I remember, man. I remember the they hit the wall, the, the the top to the box came off, the balls came out of the little three packs, they were bouncing everywhere. So that was my coach story. <laughs> well, you know, you guys may have seen eye to eye on everything. He didn't like that particular moment, that interaction, did he? Well, coach was like I was. He didn't like to lose. Yeah, I think that was probably one of his best qualities. He he definitely didn't like to lose, but. But, you know, your playing record at Oklahoma State was actually pretty, pretty good. I mean, you won the Big Eight a couple of times. You won the NCAA Individual Champion in 1968. You won the individual title. Uh, talk about just – I mean, you've talked a little bit about Laban, but some, maybe some of your teammates, what it was like to play on a, on a team that was one of the top five teams in the country every year. But then winning the NCAA Individual title, that, that has to be an amazing memory. Well, it was. It, it, it was – you know, I got to play with, I got to play with some really good players, and I played with the last two rounds. I played with Hal Underwood from Houston. Ended up, I mean, he was a great college player. I think he was, if there was such thing in 1968 as as rankings, I think he probably was ranked number one. Uh, and it was a, it was a great thrill. It really was uh, a funny story, and I mean no animosity toward any of the people involved, but we'd gone down there in the spring to play. And this was totally my fault, 100%. Played the first round, I played with Hale Irwin and Ben Kern. Ben Kern was from New Mexico State, and we were there at Las Cruces where the NCAA was going to be later on. 
in the first round, I think Irwin shot, God, I hope I get this story right. I shot 68, or Hale shot 68, I shot 69. And then I think Ben Kern shot 71. So we were first, second, third, and we turned our cards in. And I had played, oh yeah, I played with Ben. And about, oh, about 30 minutes after we turned our cards in, the the coach from New Mexico State came over to Labor and said, you know, I think your 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 number one guy had a, a scorecard problem. He said his score is right, but I think he he made a bogey on this hole and it was down for a par, and he made a par on another hole and he made a bogey there. And Ben Kern had kept my card, and uh, coach and 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 coach said, well, how'd you guys figure this out? Well, one of the guys on the team was looking at the scoreboard, and I'm, again, it's it's no it's no big deal. It's a hundred years later, and and nobody cares. But so I was disqualified mm. for signing an incorrect card. And you asked the question, whose fault was it? Well, it wasn't my fault at the time, but a day later it was my fault because I'd had time to sit down and figure out what had happened. So anyway, we came back to the NCAA. That's that, that uh, summer, and, and and eventually I won. And unfortunately, I hadn't forgotten what had happened in the spring. First thing I did after I signed that card was I went right to that New Mexico State coach and said, "You see what happens, coach?" <laughs> wow! So things anyway, come around, don't they? What comes around goes around. By the way. Historical, putting it in historical perspective, that's the same spring that Roberto DiVincenzo signed an incorrect scorecard at the Masters. Right. Bob Goby was keeping his card. Yeah. Crazy. Yep. Crazy. Yep. We were, I was uh, talking about that with somebody else. They were talking about the big, you know, cards not being signed the right way. And I said, well, the most famous one was Roberto DiVincenzo because to my knowledge, I don't think he ever won again after that. He didn't win on the PGA Tour. I know that. Yeah. So, but you're right, you know. So, you win the NCAA championship. So, as I look back on that, I remember you winning that. I was a young boy. But um, I also remember when I went to work for Mike Holder at Oklahoma State, he never really ever talked in reverence about any of his teammates other than you. Now he, he had a lot of teammates. He respected a lot of uh, players through the years. He coached that he had a great amount of respect for Greer. You got to understand. He talked to you as if you could walk on water. Uh, he told a story one day of you were, you know, one of those windy days in the spring in Stillwater, and you had teed up your ball and you were hitting a tee ball. And at the top of your backswing, the ball blew off the tee, but you just went ahead and swung it anyway and hit it like it, the ball was still up on a tee. He said it was like this man could do anything with a golf ball. What did you do during your time to impress him so much? He thought you were the best ever. Well, you know, Coach had a little bit of an unusual qualifying situation. At least I, you know – when we qualified, when I was coaching at Wichita State, you know, everybody qualified on the same day at the same time. And, you know, back then, you could pick your qualifying days. And, uh, you know, a lot of people would say, well, you know, hey, 
those guys are smart. They're going to pick the nice days. Well, you you were in Stillwater long enough. There weren't two nice days the whole year. <laughs> Wind was always blowing at 20 plus. So, but but I can remember there was a time in my early tour days, and I would if I if I could stop, I would stop. But I know that the ball's fallen off the tee a number of times, and I just go ahead and hit it. And you know. Maybe it's selective memory. I don't know. But I always remember hitting it pretty straight, pretty good. And, you know, there was a, there's a hole at Mack Park. Number six, par five, goes right dead south into the wind with a fence to the left and a creek to the right. It's a tight driving hole. And I can remember a lot of days, and the tee is uphill. Whenever they built that tee, whatever they used for flatness didn't work that day because it's pretty much uphill. So I can remember I just dropped the ball on the tee and hit it off the ground most of the time on that hole there. So it wasn't like I wasn't getting a little practice. And I think, you know, that that's nice of Mike. And, you know, there was a lot of good players, a lot of guys that I really liked. Uh, Bob Dixon, George Hickson, Jim Hardy, Hugh Edgeman, Don Lackey, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the guys I played with. Uh, Speedy Nash, Jim Young, Mike DeCello, uh, Mike Holder, uh, you know, hey, you know, the, the funny thing about it is, is that I see all the stuff that goes on today and so forth. And, you know, when I played, I don't remember all that stuff going on because I think everybody was so involved in what they were doing that they didn't they didn't recognize or see everything going on around them, around them. So I think I was so focused at playing that I, I, there was a lot of things that I missed socially. That's okay. You, you, you knew how to hit a golf ball and you knew how to make it act right. That golf ball listened to you. Uh, did you always have a dream of playing the PGA tour or is that something that just came about when you, graduated and you'd been the NCAA champion and you thought, well, I'll play the tour or we always have that dream. Well, you know, you, you think about it. I mean, every, every kid imagines himself on the 18th hole of the U S open. Yep. What am I going to do? So yeah. Uh, I can tell you that I qualified for the open in Baldur's role in 1968. So I must've been a junior or senior. Seemed like I'd, I'd qualified a year earlier than that. But anyway, I went there and played and uh, as an amateur. And I remember I shot 77, 77 and didn't make the cut. But when I came back and I, and I, and I can't, I thought about this for a lot, of, a lot of years. I can't tell you why or how or anything else. But after I came back from Baldessworld, Golf never looked the same to me. And the guys here in Wichita and the guys that I played against, they never looked the same. I knew, that, I knew at that time that I could play as good as those guys that I'd played in the open with. Wow. I, I can't tell you why. I can't tell you exactly what time I came to that conclusion, but it happened there. Funny, most people don't have that defining moment like you had right there. It's obvious that, uh, and that was 67, by the way. Baltusrol Nicholas set the open record that year, right. and um, Marty Fleckman shot 80 the final round 
uh, he was leading the Open that year as an amateur. You remember that? Right. Um, so you turned pro, you're rookie of the year on the PGA Tour, which is obviously a good start. So you played well right out of the gates. You ended up winning three times, twice in 1972, both of them in playoffs. Most people don't realize that. You were 2-0 in playoffs. How many? Not very many guys are undefeated in playoffs. Well, maybe it was that I couldn't beat the field by any more than a tie. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, trust me, I wish I'd have come down 18 with a five-shot lead. If I could just keep myself from having a heart attack, then it would have been a lot easier. But you know what? In the game of golf, you play as hard as you can play, and at the end of the 72 holes, you, you look and see where you are, and then you go from there. So, yeah, I mean, I was lucky. I really was. There was – when I won it uh, in, in Illinois at what is now the Quad Cities, mm -hmm. I think I was three shots back with three holes to play, and I birdied 16 and 17, and I think the guy's name was Dave Murad, had a one-shot lead going to the last hole. And it was a par three, a three iron par three. And I hit it and I hit it good, but I hit it just a little heavy. And it came up about 30 feet short. And he hit it about 20 feet. And I left it about two inches dead center short. So I thought I was done. And he putted it up three feet and then he missed it. I mean, he should have won the tournament. And uh, so we, we both parted the first hole, and the second hole was a real long par three. And I knocked it up on the edge of the green, chipped it a foot. He made bogey, so I was very lucky to win there. And then oh. uh, uh, I won at Hawaii, and uh, I think Bob, I played Bob Murphy, and we both parted the first hole. And second hole, he three-putted. I two-putted from 30 feet. I made about a three-footer. And uh, so, I, you know, I think – Looking back on some things, I was lucky to, to win both places. And there was a couple of times when I had a chance to win when I wasn't so lucky. So you can say it all even out in the end. It pretty, pretty much does. Well, that was sort of a high watermark as far as your uh, career as the money list goes. You were fourth on the money list that year. Um, you, you literally played, I think, in right at about 20 majors, championships through your career, made the cut in the majority of those. I think you only missed three cuts. Um, you won one other event on the PGA Tour, the old Walt Disney Team Championship with Gibby Gilbert. Was Gibby one of your better friends on the tour? Yeah, yeah. You know, Gibby and Johnny Miller were probably my two closest friends out there. But you know what? As you, as you look back, and I don't know whether it was we were playing for so much less money than ever everybody else, the other sports. We golf hadn't quite caught up, even though Arnold had gotten us where we were. And I think now golf golf is caught up with tennis and football and basketball and so forth. But you know what? It was everybody got along. Uh, you know, there was a few guys that were difficult. Uh, you know, there's a couple of guys were difficult to play with, uh, but I like both of them. Chi-Chi and Lee Trevino, both were difficult to play with because there was so much fooling around and grab-assing and that kind of stuff. But every once in a while, you had to remind them, hey, you know, I got, got a three-footer here. I'm trying to squeeze in. Could the, you know, could you take it easy over on the side <laughs> of the green telling the jokes till I get done? <clears throat> but for the most part, 
there were very few guys that I would see a pairing before the tournament started. There were very few guys that I had any problems playing with. It uh, was a different day and time when money wasn't quite <laughs> what it is nowadays, obviously. But but you ended up playing for about 12 years. And as I said, you've won three times, had a really good career, obviously, but and retired in 1982. One of the players, I don't know how many times you played with Jack Nicholas, but there was one time that I remember you playing with him in 1978 at the Jackie Gleason Inverary. Um, and that was a big tournament on the, on the PGA tour on the Florida swing. Um, a crazy thing happened that year and, and it wasn't your bad golf that lost you that tournament. It was his incredible golf. The last five holes talk about that. And does it haunt you to this day? Well, no, it doesn't haunt me. And you know, the funny thing, the funny thing about that tournament is, is that they've showed replay. They showed replays through my fifties. In other words, every time, they put on a, 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 a telecast of a tournament. It seemed like they'd pick Inverary around that part of the year. And I used to get calls from all the guys I played with harassing me about, <laughs> well, I see you losing again. So, and, and, and in, a, in, a, in a good sort of way. But, yeah. you know, it, it, I, it, it all through, I played with Jack and Hale and, uh, and, uh, me, we played the last round together, and I played great. I never made a bogey. Uh, I, I, Jack played great. Jack got a great break at 17. R4, he hit a high pull hook, landed in the hazard, popped up, stayed there, and he was able to get a stance, hit a five iron on the green, 30 feet in the hole, and he hold it. You know, was he lucky? Yeah. But I hold it out of the bunker on the first hole, and the, the, all the – sportscasters or all the newspaper people were asking me, what do you think about Jack's luck on 17? I said, well, I had some luck too. I hold it out of the bunker on, on the first hole. So, you know, I mean, yeah, I probably could have won or should have done count. You know, the should have, should have died, should and could have gone. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it is what it is. And, you know, you play golf as long as I played and as many events different kinds of events that i play you learn you learn hey that ball isn't going to bounce always bounce your way or it's not always going to bounce the other guy's way so you know do the best with what you got there's a lot worse things going on today than me getting second place yeah they still paid you that week that was good and you know yeah. at the Cash time money. that was the first time in history that a player had birdied the last five holes to win a pga tour event by one shot first time in history and I think it's happened since. I think maybe Charles Schwartzel did it at Augusta, maybe birdied the last four or five. But anyway, um, two years later, I was at, going to school at Central Oklahoma, and the, the final round at Inverary had rained out, but they still had to do the telecast, so they replayed the 78 version when you got beat by Jack. And I'm in the restaurant at Kicking Bird Golf Course and I've ordered cheeseburger and fries for lunch. And the restaurant manager came over and brought me my food. And I said, here, I'll, I'll, I'll get you taken care of. And she says, uh, what are you watching? And I said, I'm watching the, the Jackie Gleason Inverary. And I said, I'll bet you lunch that Jack Nicholas wins. And so she waited and she looked at the scoreboard and 
that you had, he, you had a four shot lead on him. And she says, I'll take that bet. And <laughs> Jack birdied the last five holes and she had to buy my lunch that day. So I feel a little bit guilty, but it happened. That's a long time ago. Well, knowing you, I could see how you'd feel bad. I did feel bad, but Robbing I got free, that poor lady out of lunch. Got a free lunch that day. Heck of a deal. And I actually probably owe you lunch because of it now. So thanks, Greer. No, I don't um, want to be. I don't want to be involved with that scam. <laughs> okay. All right. I don't blame you. Listen, you retired in 1982. You were a club pro for a long time, did a lot of teaching, actually played still some competitive golf. But eventually in 1995, you became a golf coach at Wichita State. Now, a couple of things kind of uh, strike me here. One, that's a pretty good stretch that you were doing other things before you, you know, when you retired to when you actually uh, took over as a coach. And number two, you weren't exactly a young new head coach either. So how did all that come about getting the job at Wichita State? Well, some of the guys here in town, when I, when Rod Knuckles got out of, out of it or out a little tonight, don't remember the exact circumstance. <clears throat> Tom Devlin asked me if I was interested in being the coach. And I said, well, you know, I wasn't, wasn't too much at first, but then I thought about it, you know, that might be fun. I, and I've, I've done some coaching, maybe not golf, but I, I love baseball. And I like to coach baseball. And uh, uh, so I took the job, got the job and, you know, it turned out I enjoyed it. I enjoyed everything, but the travel. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I'm not going to tell you that I enjoyed going to uh a tournament and staying there for three days and walking 36 holes, watching those guys play. Uh, you know, golf is golf and, you know, it, I'm not sure how long it takes. You know, I can tell after nine holes where the guy can play or not. Now you got to get to know him a little bit better and know about him because I think how, how good he is at the moment it's probably a little less important than how bad he wants to be a great player in the recruiting process. I would rather have a guy that was average that all he cared about was playing golf. Now, obviously, you got to go to school, make your grades. and uh, But I'd rather have that kind of kid that's going to stand out there seven, eight, nine hours a day and work at it until he becomes a great player than somebody that's always already a great player that's kind of lost energy. So well, – Anyway, no, that's that's interesting. You should say that because you weren't going to get the players that Mike Holder at Oklahoma State got or that, you know, the top teams in the country. You weren't going to get those players. So you had to kind of get some kids that you developed. And through the years of watching when I was an assistant coach at Oklahoma State and then a head coach there, I, I did notice in a very big way that your players got better. And you took kids that were pretty meat and potatoes kids and they figured out a way to make themselves into a player. And so I know that had something to do with your influence, but looking back on it, was there anything that Labron may have showed you or by his example that might've helped you as a coach? Uh, you said you were similar to Labron in a lot of ways. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's all about, and it, it's, it's really pretty simple. It's just all about how you as the young, the young person, how bad you want to be a player. And I think that, you know, coach, 
pushed and pushed. And that team I played on was Speedy and Jim Young and Mike DeCello and, and Mike Holder and Mark Hayes was a freshman the last year I played. But he didn't get to play because the Big Eight was the only conference that hadn't allowed, started allowing freshmen to play. But I think it's, it's, it's about how bad you want to be a player. And I think that, you know, we worked we, – I know that in our practices, we do things that the other teams don't do. And because I've heard from the guys on the team, you know, we spent, oh, an hour out of fairway bunkers, about one out of every five practices, hitting nine irons, five irons, seven irons, and three irons. And I'm going to guess there's a lot of teams that never do that. And when we play a practice round, two or three times, even though, you know, they've got somebody out there, especially if it's the NCA, throwing penalty flags if you hit an extra ball. God forbid anybody get an extra practice shot. But anyway, we worked on hitting fairway bunker shots. And I know that, you know, I never hit a fairway bunker shot at Stillwater. Probably because they didn't have very many fairway bunkers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and and we worked at it. And I tried to make the practices. In other words, if it got too long and I saw guys, you know, losing interest or losing whatever, we'd do something else. So I tried to split the practices up where we spent an hour on 80 yards and in, 80 yards and chipping. I mean, an hour on chipping and putting an hour hit regular shots. So we just rotate so that, and I tried to be serious. I tried to get to the sites and get an extra practice round so we could get two practice rounds. Uh, You know, all the things that I learned that made me a better player, I tried to incorporate into there. Trust me when I tell you this, as a teacher, you're going to, you can help some guys. You can help some kids. Even some older people, if they'll work at it, get better. But in the long run, the player is going to do it. If you become a great player, it's not because of me or because of uh, whatever the guys' names are. They're all the famous teachers. It's because you were out there putting in the time and you did it. And I convinced enough guys on our team through the years to be as good as they could be. Now, you said I did. You're right. I, I couldn't get the players that that Oklahoma State got or Texas or the other the other great programs. And I'm not just because I didn't mention your name doesn't mean that you don't have a great program. But I had a, I had a couple of kids. I'm going to tell you something that were damn good. And I got one kid was probably the most talented kid I ever saw. That was a kid from South Texas, Dustin Garza. Oh, yeah. Oh, my Lord. I mean, to tell you, he had more talent in his left forefinger than I did in my whole body. And he got to be a really good player at a really young age. And when you're that age and you don't haven't quite figured out the ways of the world and how things actually really, really work, you don't know. And if there's somebody that's not there to tell you, then you know don't have any information. But he got to be so good with, and he he thought, well, you know, hell, all I got to do is just show up now. And I think he went a couple of years, and he started to go go down a little bit. 
And I think everybody backed off and I talked him into talked him into it. Select devil that I am, you know, he decided to come to Wichita state. And when he got here, you know, he didn't work very hard at it. And he, all he told me is how bad a putter he was. And, you know, it took, it, it took a year to, to talk him out of that. And, you know, he became a pretty good putter and he got back to working it. And I'm going to tell you something, Mike, he hit that, those, he hit that three iron higher than I hit my wedge. And that ball came down like a rooster with burnt feet. That's how soft it landed. And I'm telling you what, he shot more 61s and twos than anybody I ever saw. And, you know, did he not love the game enough? I don't, I don't think he did because this guy could have been a star. He really could have. I had a couple of other kids, uh, Judd Easterling, who's now mm-hmm. the coach at, Oak, at uh, Wichita State, and Ryan Spears. They didn't have as much talent as Garza had. Uh, what was the other kids? Uh, Connor McHenry mm-hmm. had more talent in his little finger than most people have. But I had I had some guys that were pretty darn good, but Garza was he 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 was a real talent. Yeah, I remember him. Also hit the ball a long way too. He had a lot of oh yeah, speed. and a lot. And and I'm gonna tell you something. When he was five under, he was trying to figure out how to get to six. He wasn't figuring out how to get in at four, and that's a big deal in attitude. If you're seven out there seven under. And think there's three holes left. I got three more birdie holes. Instead of how am I going to get this in at, and not get any, any worse than five, you found you a player. Did you have that same thing as a player when you were a kid? Young? Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. Well, um, so in your opinion, and, and you coached 25 years at Wichita State, you played and coached, you know, you coached with some of the great, great coaches in, in college golf, played against some of the great teams. But what do you think after and you played for one of the greatest coaches in college golf history? What what do you think, in your opinion, is the most important trait to be a great coach? I mean, like if if you were talking to a young coach today, and I realize, you know, you're you're 75 now, so you're, you know, you're talking to a, a a 21-year-old guy that's getting ready wants to be a coach, what would you tell him? What would the advice be? To, what's the most important thing? Patience. Okay. I would I would say that you have to have patience. Would you say that about a player and a coach, both? Absolutely. And there's all the, the old sayings, you know, don't ever give up. You know, you got to – you got to learn that when you tee off to play 18 holes, that's what you owe yourself. You got to play 18 holes and you can't, you can't mail in the last hole because you're going to miss the cut or because you've played a bad round. And, you know, I, I backhanded a putt in Hawaii once and missed it. It was the last time I ever did it. Those, you know, if you work hard at the game, you work too hard to mail one in. Well, I, I think that's one of the more uh, important things for a competitor. Uh, if you look at it, I never saw Tiger Woods mail it in. I uh, never saw Jack mail it in. I think the best players don't do it. They don't understand it. So as a, 
I think, I think, of course, I didn't play with Tiger, but I played with Jack. And of all the things that I admired him about him was, is that if he shot 75, that was the best he could shoot. And there was a couple of guys that played in my time, in my era, that if they got two or three over, they didn't finish. I'm not going to mention any names, and they all know who they are. So yeah. I think, I think you have, Mike, I think when you're a coach, there's a lot of great coaches and there's a lot of great things that they say, but I think you have to be yourself. You know, I think, I think if, if, you, if you've been around the game long enough and you know about the game and you understand, then I think you have to be serious about what you know and what you teach. And I think as long as you're fair and you're patient with everybody, because, you know, when you're, when you're coaching kids 18 to 22, and, you know, there's always going to be a 25-year-old or maybe a 17-year-old, you got to remember that they're young, they're impressionable, and just like we did, they're going to make some mistakes, both on the golf course and off the course. We all have some idiosyncrasies. We all have some traits that we're not exactly especially happy with, but we are what we are. So, you know, you, you, you got to give those kids a chance to grow. I love it. Thank you so much for that. So 25-year um, career finished in 2019. Uh, four-time Missouri Valley Coach of the Year, went to regionals just about every year, had some great players, some of them you mentioned already. But So now you're no longer coaching. What, what takes up your days? What, what do you do for, you know, for interest? Are you playing golf? No, I have not played. I was going to play this summer, and I was out watching one of my grandkids hit some softballs in the garage. And I was sitting on a ball bucket, and I fell off, broke my clavicle. Now. I played high school football and I got hit pretty hard a couple of times and I never broke anything. And I only fell two feet. So if you fall two feet, break your clavicle, your bones have gotten old. So okay. I didn't get to play this summer, but you know what? When I did play a little bit, I found out that I'd gotten so short and I, you know, Gibby Gilbert called me a couple of days ago and I, of course, he's older than I am. He's 81. I asked him if he was still playing. He said, I can't hit it anywhere. He said, and I found out the same thing. If I hit a four iron and a seven iron, both solid, they both carry the same distance. <laughs> the, only, the only way they're different is if you hit them on a hard ground and it runs. Now the four iron will go the right distance. But so, you know, a lot of people will tell you, oh, you know, I used to play this good and I don't play as good anymore, but I still enjoy the game. That's hogwash. You know how you want to play. You know how you've always played. I wouldn't mind standing out there if I could do it four or five hours and practice, get back to there, but you can't get back to there. There's no way back. Not unless no. I find that fountain of youth. No, that ship is down there in it? Oklahoma, but they've got it hidden. <laughs> Well, listen, Labor, listen, Greer, I truly appreciate you uh, spending an hour with me here today. It's been fun going down memory lane. And honestly, I learned a lot of new things about you today that I didn't know. So I appreciate that. Well, I appreciate it, Mike. And it's it's always good to, to see you and talk to you. You know, uh, 
I, I, I liked my time in Stillwater. I really did. I liked the guys I played with. I, I saw Mike DeSello a number of times. He used to come up to Milwaukee, and I'd go down to Chicago after the term with him and have dinner and fly out the next day. And we even, we even got together, and we were going to meet, come down to Stillwater and watch a game. We never did quite get it done, but I, I liked all those guys. You know, they were, they were good guys. Well, your, uh, your legacy in Stillwater is secure and what you did on the PGA Tour and as a coach at Wichita State, very impressive. Uh, glad to say you were one of my childhood heroes back in the day. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. And now that you're a little smarter, you need to get a younger one. Yeah, I'll find I'll find a new one. Trust me. Yep. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much, Gary. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. Good, good uh -huh. luck to Baylor. <laughs> <laughs>